Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director of ECFR, and I am substituting slash cooing Mark Leonard on this podcast. Uh, he's on sabbatical, which we're, we are reliably informed will not be permanent. Um, so this week's podcast will be about the military situation in Ukraine. Going into this holiday season, I would say that the mood among Ukraine supporters has become somewhat grim. It is difficult to escape the sense that a general war fatigue is kicking in in both Europe and the United States. Europeans are bickering over financial aid and Ukrainian accession to the EU. Dysfunction seems to be paralyzing the Congress. The war in Gaza seems to be uh, hogging a lot of attention. And what's more, and probably most importantly, the war's frontiers have barely budged since last year, and Ukraine's much anticipated uh, counteroffensive over the summer led to, at best, small gains. So what we're going to do today is discuss the current state of the war, particularly from a military perspective, um, ask what happened to the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and perhaps most importantly, what steps the West can take uh, going forward to help Ukraine prepare for 2024. Luckily, we have an all-star cast to help us through some of these difficult questions. We're joined today by Michael Kaufman and Gustav Bressel. Michael Kaufman is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment's Russia and Eurasia program, and he is the host of his own podcast on War on the Rocks, uh, on the War on the Rocks website called The Russia Contingency, which I would highly recommend to everyone. Gustav, as I think our listeners know, is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, focusing on Eastern Europe, Russia, and defense policy. Thanks both for joining me, and welcome to the podcast. Okay, so let's go into it. Let's go into the grimness. Last week's headline in The Economist, which is the only thing that I read, uh, asked, is Putin winning? So I think maybe we should start asking both of you that question. Uh, Gustav, you've written a paper uh, which begins with the answer to that question. So I think I know what you're going to say, but uh, how would you answer the question, is Putin winning? Well, if nothing changes, uh, he has a fair chance. He has actually a very good chance of winning. Um, that's the unfortunate news. So the problem is, yes, uh, the war is a war of attrition. It, I think it's longer... For longer part of this war, war for attrition, it's just now people uh, really realize it, and the the kind of chances for maneuver are enormously slim for both parties. Uh, the problem is that uh, on the long run, uh, Russia has made its plan to resupply its front with ammunition, but also with armored vehicles and other war materials. Uh, they have gone at great length of circumventing sanctions. Uh, they have gone at great length and in investing a lot of money into the defense industry. Uh, while in the West, the picture is much more muted. And for the time being that Ukraine's defense industry is outsourced to the West, uh, the West willingness and ability, and this is more a thing of willingness than ability to support Ukraine is pivotal. And here, unfortunately, um, we kind of, at least from the European perspective, we have last year made use of 
leftover materials from transitioning countries into NATO standard. We now make uh, some use of leftover materials from the Cold War. Uh, but if this is a war of attrition that uh, will last longer than next year, uh, what are we going to do then? Uh, defense industrial measures need a, a kind of time frame to kick in. If you order a tank now, you will have to wait, depending on how many tanks you order between two and three years, till it will arrive somewhere, either in Ukraine or in uh, or in your own army to replace a tank you want or will donate to Ukraine. Um, and the same applies to all other kinds of weapon systems. We have so far only uh, made an industrial effort to produce ammunition, and that gives you an illustration uh, on how many squabbles and uh, uh, delays uh, there are in such issues and that original timelines uh, that are laid out by the defense industry uh, usually uh, take usually stuff takes much longer, and so the problem is that uh, we are starting to run out of equipment. Uh, our politicians don't don't induce the necessary defense industrial means, and Ukrainians start to get rich. So, if I get you correctly, basically, it's a war of attrition. Yes, both sides are being attrited, but the but the Russians are better able to sustain it. Mike, would you agree with that? Is Putin winning in that regard? It's a war characterized by attrition, right? But all wars significantly feature attrition and attempts to break out of that and restore capacity to maneuver and breakthrough. And attrition is usually one of the main approaches uh, to enable that. So I think the, the other big question is whether or not this war is going to be increasingly characterized by positional warfare as well that will be challenging for either side to break out of. The issue I see for the coming year is Russia's materially advantaged in, in most areas. This advantage, however, is unlikely to be decisive. And to some extent, Ukraine can help maintain notional parity. Uh, my point of view is Putin or Russia is not winning yet, but that advantage could be translated into a situation where Ukraine begins losing the war next year. And that advantage then only stacks after 24 into 25 and into 26. Okay, This future is not yet written, right? There's a difference between having the advantage, which is the potential, and be and winning the war. And we're not quite there yet. Um, my view is that next year is, is going to be fundamentally a turning point in this year, in this war, Jeremy. It's kind of a fork in the road. And it very much depends on what Ukraine chooses to do. It will require addressing some big issues in military strategy, uh, questions of manpower. Um, and, and resourcing on our side uh, to, to try to set the conditions and maybe use next year as a build year to retake military advantage by 2025. That's an optimistic scenario of what happens next year and the options and opportunities are there. Well, let's... But it can obviously, I was going to say, it can obviously go in other directions too. Let's follow up on that because uh, what I think what you said something super, super important, which is that... Um, in a war of attrition, typically speaking, both sides are always trying to re restore or maneuver to the battlefield. And you, we've seen a lot of that, I think, in the last year, uh, frankly, on both sides. Um, and so before we talk about what maybe next year would be like, let's try to understand maybe last year. In your, in your view, 
Why was it that the Ukrainian counteroffensive failed? And maybe more generally, why have both sides had such trouble restoring maneuver to the battlefield? And I think that, you know, obviously I'm going to then ask the question about how they're going to do it in the next year, but you can start there. Uh, Mike, why don't we start with you on that question since you you've inspired? Well, uh, I spilled a lot of ink on, ink on that subject over the last uh, five months, right? Um, yeah. I'm not sure what more I could add to the things I've said over the summer. Just fall assume and, that there's a couple and, people out there sure. that haven't read it. The and and even today, there's uh, two lengthy Washington Post pieces, kind of uh, getting into all the details of what happened in the offensive and the planning for it and how it got executed. And it ventilates those articles ventilate a lot of the different perspectives and and um, to some extent. Uh, uh, recriminations of, of those different sides involved. If I was going to boil it down to, I think, a very short answer, was the first is that the Russian military mounted a fairly well-organized and competent prepared defense whose overall value and effect was underestimated. That is, the expectations for the offensive were too high to begin with. And if you read sobering analysis in the run-up to the offensive, it should have mitigated them. I think folks are a bit too optimistic heading into the into the offensive itself, right? Second, uh, there were some resourcing and timing issues involved in the offensive, and there's an ongoing debate regarding that, but I don't think that this was deterministic of the outcome. Uh, lastly, I think a lot of it still came down to military strategy, to planning, and actual force employment. I don't think that the offensive was fundamentally an ends-means mismatch. I don't like retconning this history that is to say that the offensive could have never succeeded because the resources weren't there for it. I just don't think that's true, and I think there's very good evidence to, against that, that argument. A lot of it comes down to force employment, right? what actually happens, how you run the operation. And and how that plan matches up against the enemy's defense. And there are also times, Jeremy, where you do everything right and it's still not enough to achieve a breakthrough. Right. People who don't uh, work in defense military analysis, they assume that if it didn't succeed, then all these things must have gone wrong. But there are times where you do everything right and it's not enough to attain success. Too. Yeah, that's basically the story of my life. Uh, <laughs> um, Gustav. I assume that you that you sort of broadly agree on that, but please, if you don't, uh, uh, with what Mike with Mike just said, speak up. But actually, what I'm, I'd like to sort of move to the next obvious question on that, which is, uh, what are the what are the both sides looking at in terms of being able to restore maneuver to the battlefield for next year, and do you think that either of them has a chance? Thanks. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, we can debate or redebate the the offensive all over again. The thing is, it's basically it's done now. So uh, the offensive has by and large ended. Most of the reserves have moved to the east to counter Russian offensive action. There, uh, there's still some offensive action, although that's more fixing action or trying to keep the front moving and prevent the Russians from digging in. Um, the the thing, what I think differs now from from what a stalled offensive like the Kherson offensive uh, that was also quite stalled at the beginning uh, differs from last year is that uh, the war is also changing in character and uh, that makes it harder to predict the outcome and when at what for kind of forces and what kind of concentration you can break out 
of the deadlock. I recently talked to a Ukrainian veteran who spent one year in Russian captivity, and he said that the war I returned to is a completely different war than a war that I was taken prisoner from. Um, and that makes uh, sort of illustrates how, for example, the, the use of drones on the Russian side, uh, fast artillery, um, new means for command and control, not only sort of these were usually things that Ukrainians had a advantage in experience and ex- experimentation, but the Russian side has caught up. Uh, and that has also contributed to the ability to defend. It has to some point uh, provided an advantage of firepower over movement. Now, both sides are trying to escape that. Um, they develop new means, uh, like electronic warfare means, like uh, tweaking air defense assets to improve them. They're also experimenting with new mixes of forces. They know that, yes, it's all about combined arms maneuver, but what mix of the arms bit less main battle tanks, bit more air defense, more electronic warfare. A lot of it is about system integration. So how do you manage actually synchronizing all these assets that you have now, most of them in a very improvised way, uh, into a coherent force and to adopt uh, procedures? We, we saw both on the Russian and the Ukrainian side, tactical ac- adaptation we might see. Uh, further operational and organizational organi- uh, adaptations. How do you organize your offensive? What what role each individual command plays, etc. The problem now is that um, the war differs quite a lot from wars we have previously seen. So uh, the the way to predict when each side will evade or overcome the stalemate is increasingly hard. Uh, last year, one could have told you, well, if Ukrainians get X amount of uh, artillery, shells, armored vehicles, they could achieve that and that. Force concentration, they can assemble this and this force, and it will roughly enable that. Because it's mechanized warfare, roughly as we have seen it or had seen it by the end of the Cold War. Uh, now with uh, the progress in the war, that is hard to say. And that is a problem also for us predicting the war because um, we nobody can really guarantee you Ukrainians or Russians will break out of the stalemate or the positional war first. And the second is nobody can guarantee that they will achieve that next year or the year after or the, near, the year after the year after. Uh, yeah. Uh, look, look. Okay. You know, I remember once when I was in the government, a, a U.S. official sort of expressing frustration to me that um, that the military analysts were brilliant at giving them long, detailed explanations about why they didn't know anything. Um, it, it, so, I mean, I can accept that this stuff is really difficult to predict, but I really would like your best judgment. Uh, Mike, did you uh, did you want to come back on that? I mean, you seem yeah. to have an objection. Yeah. Well, two finger. I mean, I don't say. I mean, the only objection I would have, and we'll call it some narcissism of small differences with Gustav, is I actually, I actually think this war looks a lot like other wars we've seen before or have seen in the past. I think that that wars tend to follow. I mean, they're all distinct in their own their own context, but they tend to follow. Um, which ones does it uh, look like? Cert- <laughs> which ones? I mean, to me, this is a prolonged conventional war, right? So you're going to have periods. You have you have you have an initial high intensity maneuver phase, right? Then if that phase isn't decisive, which often it isn't, between powers at certain scale where one side is just too resilient to be knocked out easily, you have a prolonged attritional phase, and then the most decisive thing in the war is a question first and foremost: who can sustain the war via material, manpower, and ammunition? Who can reconstitute better? 
who can manage their force quality issues the most because the army you start the war isn't the army you're going to have a year into it, right? So neither Ukraine nor Russian military looks remotely the way it did when the war began. A lot of those best people are gone. A lot of the better equipment is gone, right? The forces change. So it's, it's a function of reconstitution. And then who can mobilize the defense industrial sector faster and more effectively? And unfortunately, right now, uh, while the West has done, I think, um, an okay job in some parts of the war trying to supply Ukraine, it's been very, very late to need. And you see Russian defense. There was a real window of opportunity that existed this year. The Russian military was at its worst point in terms of manpower, probably last fall, winter. The Ukrainian military was too exhausted to prosecute that advantage. Okay. But the Russian military was still at its worst point in terms of ammunition availability, equipment availability, defense industrial production coming out of the winter into the spring ahead of this offensive, right? So if you looked at where we were going through the summer, that was the best window of opportunity overall, okay? And, and now, now it's been missed. And to answer your earlier question, why? I would say the bottom line is Ukrainian advantages weren't decisive enough. And they took on risks and strategy, which all strategy takes on risk. There was no sort of risk-free um, or, or opportunity or, or cost-free opportunity to, to pursue that didn't pan out. The, the situation, the way I see it now that we're going into, if you're asking what's going to be most decisive, okay? First, the side that's most able to resolve their issues with force quality, reconstitute their force so they can get back to employing military power at scale on the offense. It's much harder to be on the offense than it is to be on the defense, right? This is issue one, okay? Being able to scale offensive operation. Second, the side that's most better able to manage their resourcing the means, that is produce artillery, ammunition, the basic stuff that you need, the currency of war. You cannot get away from air defense ammunition. You cannot get away from artillery ammunition. If you have drones, drones can offset your ammunition needs to some extent. But guess what? You need hundreds of thousands of drones. I was in Ukraine recently. There's a deficit of munitions for the drones themselves. You need to solve the munition deficit for the drone problem to use the drones to some extent to offset your artillery deficit problem, right? Okay, so the numbers matter. Um, lastly, force employment, okay? Like, you have to look at both, not just the character of war, but what's happening in specific context of the war you are fighting. And this is part of what Zelushin was trying to get, who, get at, at his interview and in a long article he wrote, which is, need to change doctrine, need to come up with better concepts of operations, need to change force employment to try to break out. So the solutions I saw him identifying Right, where three had three pillars to it: force employment, how you fight, right? First, for foremost, second, technological innovation. Okay, here's the here's the character of of of, uh, of this particular battlefield and and technological innovation as as always one thing the militaries try to reach to get out of it. That's the one I usually am the most skeptical of. Just so you know, Jeremy, and I also yeah. believe. I also believe that if you identify the technologies that got you into a stalemate or positional warfare, those are usually not necessarily the ones that are going to get you out of it. They're often the ones that get you even deeper into it, usually by trends. And yes, third, the, suggest that. Yeah. yeah. And the third one, though, that I really like, because that's the one I, I usually focus on analytically, is the fundamentals. You need reserves. You need to fix force quality. All these things. Like You need to go address the core issues in your force. And, and I think that the side that's better able to do that will have a, a bigger, a better advantage overall. That was a super useful laydown. And maybe I want to uh, zoom in, uh, Gustav, on the second point about resourcing, because um, you've written quite a bit on, uh, first of all, what the key resources are. Mike mentioned a couple. You maybe want to add to that or agree. 
But then maybe more importantly, tell us where to where do you think that the two sides stand in particularly the Ukrainian Western side in the in the question of the of resourcing on the key area in the key areas? Well, so I obviously have to start with artillery ammunition. <clears throat> now, uh, the problem is so far the war has been uh, whacked uh, depleting stocks. Basically, so new production neither in the United States nor in Europe can can feed the war as it is. Um, the same accounts for the Rus- uh, Russians, although now with tapping into North Korea, probably or a, a lot of in- signs uh, showing Chinese ammunition as well. Uh, Russia here is is quantitatively on the better side. Now the problem is uh, both the EU and the American struggle. Uh, to keep up uh, and to realize the plans in the U.S. for financial reasons, in in Europe by political reasons, the Commission uh, has has tried to to deliver one million rounds on top uh, of what uh, will be delivered by the U.S. Um, that is almost impossible to achieve uh, unless. Uh, U.S. contracts break down and uh, all the European defense enterprises that work for the Americans uh, are free to to have commission money. Uh, the second thing is, of course, air defense. Here we are a bit on a better side um, because uh, we have we have increased production for Patriot missiles. We have increased production for IST. We have made Ukrainian use a lot of old uh, Stuff that is stuck in our inventory and then basically would have would have been scrapped if Ukraine wouldn't fire these things into the sky. Uh, Ukraine made a great deal of improvisation to defend itself against drones with uh, basically anti-aircraft guns uh, equipped with night vision devices. Um, armored vehicles um, uh, are now the value of the tier start. So I said before, last year was the year of giving Ukraine what is left over from NATO transition this year. It's old Cold War stuff. If you uh, you hear a lot of stories about uh, fancy new tech equipment, but the mainstay of the fighting is done like with old Cold War type vehicles like M113, um, M109 howitzers, all this kind of stuff. Um, what uh, Ukraine has initiated a defense industrial plan to produce a lot of stuff by themselves, but uh, it will not take effect until 2025. So the first vehicles um, that come out of defense industrial cooperation with the West might reach uh, the day of light this uh, in the next year, but in quantity, it will only matter in 2025. Um, and then we don't know yet about the quantity because there, there still will be Russian missile attacks. Uh, although Ukrainian production has become quite resilient to that by spreading out, by uh, using small workshops, uh, you'll never solve the problem in its entirety. Uh, and here, the, Russia roughly produces 250 tanks and roughly over 350 infantry fighting vehicles a year. And plus that, they renovate about 1,000 uh, from depots every year. That, Of course, these are rough estimations. We, we don't know exactly, but that's and that yes, that is below what they have lost over the common uh, over the last almost two years, uh, but it's still a significantly higher amount of equipment than Ukrainians uh, got. And and this is, I mean, armored fighting vehicles in a shooting war 
um, are not something that stays forever. You need to constantly replenish that because they get lost uh, lost on on quite a staggering rate. Um, Europeans here, they gave them artillery and they gave them air defense and thought that, well, you give them armed fighting vehicles and they will stay as long as the air defense assets around. No, that doesn't happen. So, I mean, to summarize, it sounds like uh, both sides are retreating, but maybe uh, the Ukrainians are retreating faster or the Russians are retreating slower, I guess. Um, Mike, I mean, I, what can Ukraine's allies, particularly the US and Europe, do about this situation? Is there is there any material assistance that they can give or is it all about force quality and force deployment oh lots um let me let me offer some uh, coherent thoughts right because it's always yeah as analysts i spent a lot of time admiring the problem but you and i and others will work on the applied side so eventually you get into a room where somebody says yeah that's great and thank you for the bad news and all that uh what would you do and what do you think we can do i hate when they say that yeah, it's the worst it is the worst um Boy, things are way easier on Twitter and other places where you could just opine until you get into an actual room where somebody asks you for 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 concrete ideas and your basis for those ideas, and you have to come up with solutions. So let me let me offer a bit just where of where my head's at. Okay, first, um, the U.S. can do quite a bit in helping Ukraine solve the defense industrial capacity issues it has. Ukraine's highly innovative. It really struggles in actually scaling industrial production. There's a lot we can do there. Second, next year would be a great opportunity to consolidate the Ukrainian military, rationalize the force. You would be really amazed by what they are able to do, build and repair on their own, not just in terms of Soviet family equipment, but our equipment, right? There's a lot we can do there to help them out. It would be a, a year that would actually reconstitute a lot of their military capability, help them sort out the zoo of equipment they inherited from us in every single category, right, which is a maintenance and logistics nightmare, all right? Um, there's a lot we can do on training. First, based on the lessons learned from this offensive, what happened in this offensive, we've learned a tremendous amount of what to do, what not to do. We can substantially extend and scale up training programs in the West. We are no longer being time compressed for a surge effort for which we have barely four months to make a brigade. Shocking finding. You cannot make a brigade in four months anywhere on Earth. Okay, like this just doesn't happen. Okay, We no longer are time compressed, so we can actually fix that. We can localize also training in Ukraine, help them scale up their own training, do it the way they want to, help them extend their own training programs. This isn't hard. And, and there's a lot, it's not just something the United States can do, it's something European countries can do, right? Like they all, this within their capability. All right. Um, so training is an important part of it. Uh, we, can, we can also help Ukraine quite a bit in, uh, in terms of our own defense industrial production. Uh, Gustav already talked about ammunition, sorting this out. Uh, the United States obviously was late to need in providing certain types of capabilities. But if you look at the strategic arc of the picture, I typically blame Europeans because it's a great window of opportunity while the United States was feeding off of its stocks when Europeans could have invested to increase artillery ammunition production. And most of them didn't do that and waited 13 months. And after 13 months, they really got started getting on it and nonetheless can't deliver on any of the quotes and numbers that they want anyway, which was a very predictable outcome right, in this war. But the next year can be used to fix that. To provide Ukraine with a sufficient amount of ammunition in 2025, this is very feasible. Like this is not fantasy land stuff. I'm talking about Germany. This is very feasible. Europeans can now look at, like, yeah, we can't go back in time to fix the things that didn't happen when they should have back then, but we can do them this coming year, right? Um, and we can give Ukraine the opportunity to not only defend 
but to attain military advantage or to pursue at least an offensive operation with a chance of success uh, uh, a year plus down the line. Lastly, there's a lot that can be done that Ukraine is working on to improve its own long-range strike means and localized capabilities without requiring missiles from us or from the Europeans, and that can be substantially expanded over the next year. So there's there's plenty that can be done. And even in things like, for example, yes, uh, FPVs can to some extent offset the deficit in artillery ammunition. Solving the problem of FPV production and munitions for FPVs is eminently easier than onlining main caliber artillery production in the West. Okay, this is a much uh, easier challenge to, to address with and solve that we could do next year. So I can keep going. But anyway, so these, these are a host of ideas, but that all things that could be done next year. And in my view, uh, people should be pursuing right now. Lastly, and that's a controversial point, you know, I've been banging on this for a long time. It is very hard for us to keep prosecuting this war without some sort of increased presence in terms of advisors, analysts, trainers, and maintainers on the ground. I'm not talking about boots on the ground, but we are heading, you know, well into, going to be heading into the third year of this war in this very strange kind of pretzel logic policy where we're heavily involved on the intelligence and, and support side and material side, and we do war gaming and planning and all these things with the Ukrainians, right? But we're still trying to maintain this kind of uh, minimum, almost non-existent posture, and it's just not working very well. And, and I think it's unhelpful. And I don't think it's a sustainable approach. I think we have to figure out because we're, we're principally in this in this for the long war now. And we have to figure out what that future looks like in, in terms of uh, U.S. policy and presence. Thanks. Wow. You did. You did. You, you would do well in that room. That's the key is to sort of barrage them with ideas so that they uh, so that they get off balance. Uh, Gustav, I don't want you to barrage us with more ideas, but I would really like your views on on what Mike said, and particularly on this this sort of final controversial point he mentioned about the need for it, uh, some sort of advisory mission, I guess, on the ground. Um, do you agree with that? And, and do you think that that has to be American or can it be European? I absolutely agree with that. Actually, there are some European nations that are a bit more forward-leaning uh, on this. The United Kingdom or France make ample use of seconding military attaches and second attaches and assistance to attaches who do a lot of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> so you can really, without boot on the grounds, you can still further explore the framework you have. You can make it uh, voluntary um, to, uh, you can, sort of the French have done that for, for certain kind of personnel to have the right to leave service to volunteer. Um, uh, but also Ukraine uh, actually can improve this. Ukraine has still an ample pool of reserve officers who are uh, dedicated uh, language officers. But according to Ukrainian defense law, it's really hard to send officers over uh, abroad during war in a, for a long period of time. But the problem is a lot of um, <clears throat> countries in Europe struggle first and foremost for translators and translators who really know military terms and, and understand the subject they're talking about for the training effort, for translating manuals, for translating um, uh, military literature, etc., for training courses. Um, so this can be scaled up both in the West as well as uh, in Ukraine. There are pointless restrictions on, for example, flying Ukrainian drones in, in European um, uh, training grounds that basically prevent us training Ukrainian forces as they're supposed to fight in Ukraine. Um, and and we can really make much more of the training there. Uh, the European training mission could uh, uh, skip the limit of uh, only 
being allowed to train up to company level, uh, training battalion commanders, brigade commanders, staff officers, logistical officers is equally important. Um, Ukraine's army has has scaled up its size dramatically, and you don't find uh, specialists and officers on the street. Uh, that that is a problem. Uh, so there can be a lot of things can be done uh, without sending boots to the uh, on the ground into Ukraine the way we used to. Okay, I, I guess we could go on for quite some time, but I think uh, we're we're nearing the end, and there is one le- thing left to do on this podcast, and this is our uh, bookshelf section. So I'd like to ask each of you what you've been reading, watching, listening to that you could recommend to our uh, listeners. Um, Mike's looking at his bookshelf, so I think we're going to have to start with Gustav. Um, Mike, Gustav, what, what are you reading or listening? Um, well, it's, it's quite the same thing. So since the full-scale invasion, there's uh-huh. even less time to read anything but kind of reports and, and short things. Um, on top, I'm living in a construction site, so I don't even have proper shelves or books are supposed to lie. But actually, I just rushed through my orders and I thought I would at some point in time read... Um, Arce Tsarakol, I certainly pronounced that wrong, Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders. Um, But yeah, uh, in in a galaxy far, far away in a new age, I will probably have the time to read it. What's on your bookshelf, Mike? We're probably better off uh, talking about what what we we want to read and wish we had time to read. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality of my life, Jeremy, for the last two years. It involves a lot of books I have attempted to read on planes and other places and and not had enough time to do so. I'm actually trying to think, what have I really completed even so what's the book you most wish you had read in the last two years but didn't? Oh, <laughs> um, I okay. I wish I had gotten through uh, Nolan's The Allure of Battle, which is an awesome book, That, that it, but it's very thick. Like a couple of the books I had to have me are very thick. Um, that's a great one. I reread parts right now on flights uh, with me um, of uh, Steve Biddle's Military Power and uh, Dave Johnson's uh, – uh, uh, fast tanks, heavy bombers, sort of history of army innovation to war period. And then I have an entire stack of books that is slowly growing. That's not on my bookshelf, but like horizontal next to my bookshelf of stuff I've bought woefully optimistic that I'm going to get to. And it's like, they're taunting me. It's like, these are all the books you might've read in the last two years, but, but didn't, um, that, that I, that, that I hope to, to, to eventually get there. And then, you know, besides that, um, I spent a lot of my time just reading long form reports and monographs and, and whatnot. Uh, oh, Mike, I've begged you to get hobbies. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, I have hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll take your word for that. Okay. Well, I'm not nearly in as much demand as either of you. So I do occasionally get to read something. Um, and uh, I've just started um, the book that won the Booker Prize last year, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Shehan Karuna Talaka. Um, I've been practicing that name. Uh, it's a, um, it's a, a wacky book, basically a combination ghost story whodunit where the corpse is also the detective. Uh, and, uh, you know, usually I don't like the Booker Prize winners because I feel like there's they're more chosen for who the who the author is than the quality of the book. But this book is really quite impressive. So 
I'd recommend it, particularly to both of you, who I think really need to decompress a little on your reading material. So, so I will tell you, I recently um, and rewatched like over time uh, the the Sopranos, which I first watched when it came out, right? But it's it's it's. Oh, wow, it, yeah. But I will tell you. That show is really good, especially when you're when you rewatch it and you're like 20 years older. <laughs> I'll put it this way: you get, <laughs> you get a different perspective on the same program if you watch it. You're 20 oh, years yeah, older, yeah. a different yeah. place in your life. So there, there are a few shows I have taken um, uh, either either from my college days or some other periods, right? That that I've come back to, uh, and and yeah, it's it's different. I would say the. It's it's totally it's totally worth the price of admission to rewatch certain shows back in your in your forties. <laughs> Excellent. So this has been an unusual bookshelf section, but I think we've determined the books that we should read, but probably won't, and then the the, the television series that we um, had already watched, but should probably watch again because we're different. Um, I like that a lot. So uh, I think we can end it there. We will put a link to all the publications we mentioned uh, on our website at ecfr.eu. I don't think any of you would be able to find The Sopranos without that. Um, if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours. And above all, hopefully, please endorse my coup of this podcast by giving us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now, from Michael Kaufman, Gustav Gressel, and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Maria Faro Saratz. Mm-hmm.